tonight we're going to begin a little series in the book of Genesis. How many of you have ever been taken through Genesis in any way, taught Genesis? How many have not? That's a better question. You haven't been taken through? Come on, you know, be ashamed. Raise your hands. People went half-masked on me. Okay, quite a few. So the reason I'm in this, because I want to deal with the things that are under attack in our culture. Uh, Sunday, if you were here, I preached on having a, a, a biblical worldview. I called it Change Your Mind, Change Your Life. And I'm going to be on that series for a few more weeks. It's going to be a life changer. I'm convinced of it. But folks, what we're about to do is we're about to get into the holy, sacred, eternal word of God. And it's going to change us. Change your mind, change your life. Amen? And so we're going to deal with a biblical worldview tonight because the biblical worldview is that God made everything. And if you don't believe that, I want to know what form of Christianity you bought into because, uh, you know, amen, it's not New Testament. But uh, I want to pray, and then I'm going to just um, share some basic facts about the Bible itself. And um, when we're done with this series, here's what I want. I want you to have a biblical worldview more so than you do now, and I want you more confident than ever that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. It's indestructible, irrefutable, undeniable, and it's eternal. So let's pray together, and then we're going to get into uh, the opening salvo of the book of Genesis. Father, we just thank you right now. Can we lift our hands to, to the Lord, church, and just say with me, say, Lord, tonight, change my mind. Change my life. I receive with meekness the engrafted word, able to save my soul. And Lord, I pray, renew my thinking, renovate my thinking, change my mind, so that when this series is over, I'm a different person. And I'm far more clear on the things of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Say with me, where the beginning began. All right, you can be seated. God bless you. Let's begin where the beginning began. I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. I think that we're at a time in American Christian life that if you're not in the Bible every day, I don't know how well you're going to do. Of course, that's always been the case, but right now, we need that daily manna more than ever. Can I have an amen? We need that daily manna. Um, Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And he wasn't just talking about material provision. He was talking about spiritual food. Give us today our daily bread. So I want to begin this series by, as I've already stated, sharing some basic facts about the Bible. I want you to understand the Bible. So what is the Bible? Did you know that the Bible is the most published transmitted. Oh, by the way, all the notes are up there for you to follow along. Well, they're not there, but they're back. Oh, they're behind me. Good. Made me nervous. All right. So I put the notes up there so you can follow along because we're not handing them out this time. But the Bible is the most published, transmitted, translated, most owned and read book ever written. Ever. Why? Because it's the word of God and people know it. The Bible is ultimately one book. Now it's comprised of 66, but it's one book. Everybody say one. 
Okay? One book. Well, how can it be one book if it's 66 books put into one? Let me show you how it's one book. Because of its one source. That's the first reason. Because look at what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, verse 17. Uh, All scripture, how much of it? All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Or it tells us how to live a life that pleases God. All right? It corrects us. I think that's why some people don't come to churches that preach the Bible, uh, which churches like that are going the way of the dodo bird. But nevertheless, um, churches, they, they avoid churches that preach the Bible. They go to churches that are really more like motivational seminars because they don't want to hear the word of God quoted because it corrects them. And I don't want to be corrected, right? But look what it says, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all scripture Theonoustos, theos, God, noustos, breathed out. It, it is literally spoken by God through those he laid his hands on. Peter tells us, holy men of old were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit and wrote down what the Holy Spirit directed them to write. That's where we get the word of God. So the Bible is not a book about God from men. The Bible is not men telling me what God is like uh, and what God's about. No, the Bible is a book from God to man about himself. Okay? I'm not going to know anything about God apart from the Bible. Not anything. Now, I might look at creation and, and say, well, clearly a divine being did this. But it doesn't tell me anything about the character of God. It doesn't tell me what it's like, his holiness, his mercy, his etern- eternality, his, his, uh, the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, his, his judgments uh, that are far above our ability to comprehend, uh, his, that he created all things, that, that he knows the end from the beginning, that he's always been and always will be. Uh, I would know none of those things except the word of God told me. So the Bible is from God to us so he can explain himself to us or we're not going to know anything about him. Now, second, it's one book because it has a singular message and that message is salvation. That's what the Bible's about from Genesis to Revelation. Salvation. Now, the Bible is made up of 66 books as I've already mentioned But those 66 books were written by 40 different authors, all right, over a period of 1,500 years. That's a long time, all right? And it's written in primarily three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Wrap your head around that. We, You hold in your hand a book, the Bible, your own library, 66 books in all, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. Um, that, that is your own library of God's word, all right? But it took 1,500 years for 40 different authors to pen the whole thing. So what does that tell us? They couldn't have gotten together and compared notes, right? 
Come on, everybody. They couldn't have gotten together and, and said, okay, we're, we're going to write a book that, that, that creates a fairy tale about uh, some mythical God, so we better get together and be sure that we're on the same page. No, they couldn't do that because 1,500 years it took to do it. 1,500 years. And 40 different authors. But it's one cohesive book. When you read it, it all agrees. All 66 of those books agree. And they're about the same thing, salvation. Uh, The plan of salvation. That God began it in Genesis 3.15. Well, that was the first prophecy about it. He actually began the plan of salvation before the world began. But it's a profound book. It is both simple and profound. If you live to be a thousand years, you would still not plumb all of its depths. It is an amazing book, a wonderful book, uh, uh, an irreplaceable book. You can't do without it. We need it. It's a gift from God, preserved through the ages. And every one of these 40 authors over 1,500 years brought this message. We are sinners, and we need to be saved, and we can't save ourselves, so we need a Savior. We need a Redeemer. And the plan of salvation was for God to send his only begotten son. And God finally did send his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the, the, the whole Bible in a nutshell. That's what it's about. All the way through the Old Testament, all the prophets, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, all of, of the key figures, everything that their lives were leading up to, everything the prophets pointed to was the coming of Jesus Christ to die on a cross to cover our sins because we can't save ourselves, And that's the message of the Bible. Furthermore, the one book from one source is divided into two sections, and we call it Old Testament, New Testament, but it really is an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Old Covenant covers the creation of the earth till about 400 years before Jesus came to earth. So, begins with Genesis, ends with Malachi. When the book of Malachi closes, 400 years go by before God speaks another fresh word. Can you believe that? Four centuries, that's a long time. Now, a lot went in on uh, during that time. Uh, we call it the intertestamental period. Uh, those 400 years between the two covenants or testaments. But there was no fresh word after Malachi closed his book and his prophecy. Until John the Baptist cried out, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the new covenant kicked in. All right, it tracks the development, the Old Testament tracks the development and the dealings primarily of God's chosen people, Israel, who were chosen as the lineage to bring forth Messiah. That's why they were chosen. God told Abraham in Genesis 12 and later on in Genesis, through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, how are all the nations of the earth blessed through Father Abraham? Because from his descendants, the Messiah was born through the tribe of Judah. And by him, all the nations of the earth are blessed. All right? So it begins with Genesis and it ends with Malachi. And it tracks the story of God's chosen people. 
Then the New Testament begins with the birth, life, and ministry of, of course, Jesus Christ. It then moves into the book of Acts, which describes the birth of the church and its expansion. And then that's followed with 21 letters written by the apostles or close associates of the apostles, instructing believers how to live their faith out in Christ. So the Gospels are all about the arrival of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts is about the explosive beginning of the church and how it spread the Gospel throughout the world in 28 chapters. Then you come to the epistles, and they tell us how to walk out the faith that Jesus has called us to. Amen. Paul, Peter, James, John, and Jude wrote the epistles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the New Testament closes with the revelation of John, which tells us how the universe created in Genesis 1 is going to end. In the Bible, amazing. Because think with me, in Genesis, we see paradise lost. In Revelation, we see paradise restored. In Genesis, we see the curse imposed. But in Revelation, shows us the curse removed. In Genesis, we see fellowship with God broken. But in Revelation, we see God again dwelling with man. Amen. In Genesis, we see a perfect garden defiled by sin. But in Revelation, we see a city where nothing that defiles can enter. Amen. In Genesis, we see the triumph of evil and of the serpent. But in Revelation, we see the ultimate triumph of the Lamb of God over sin, Satan, and death. And the serpent that brought man down in Genesis is thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. The 64 books in between Genesis and Revelation fill the gap and move the story forward. So Genesis answers this question, everybody. How did it all start? And Revelation answers the question, how will it all end? So you have the, uh, the book of beginnings, and you have the book of the end. And there's your Bible. Isn't it beautiful? Come on, everybody. Isn't it beautiful? I want you to say it with me a little, you might think it's a little strange, but say it with me. It's a beautiful Bible. It is. It, it is the holy word of God. Amen. So let's begin at the beginning, the book of Genesis, where everything started. That's where it all began. The word Genesis means origin or creation. So Genesis is literally the book of the beginning of everything. All right? It's been said that every major Bible doctrine you find after Genesis has its seed or its beginning in Genesis. For example, the material universe, the human race, sin, the promise of the Messiah, languages, and the Hebrew nation all had their beginnings in the book of Genesis. Now, for this reason, Genesis is called the seed pot of the whole Bible. Every great fact, truth, and revelation is found in this book in germ form. The book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is essential to understanding the rest of the Bible. If you don't understand Genesis, let me tell you what. You're never going to really comprehend the rest of the Bible. <clears throat> you're not going to know what it's all about. 
You're not going to know how the story began. It'd be like opening a novel in the middle and trying to follow it. No, Genesis chapter 1 of the novel of life. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is a book, not just of the beginning, but of firsts. All right? It records the first temptation. It happened in Genesis. The first sin happened in Genesis. The first judgment from God happened in Genesis. The first prophecy, Genesis 3.15. From your seed, he said, God said to the woman, uh, what is going to come is going to bruise the, the devil's head. That's the first prophecy. And it's found in Genesis 3.15. Uh, you've got the first jealousy manifesting in the book of Genesis. The first murder happens in Genesis when Cain killed Abel. The first prayer is uttered in Genesis. The first couple appear in Genesis. The first marriage takes place in Genesis. First birth, the first lie. And I could go on and on and on about the firsts that are in Genesis. But everything there is there in seed form. Now Moses was God's chosen instrument to write the book of Genesis. Follow me on this now. I want you to think about what an incredible man of revelation Moses was. Follow me, church. Maybe you've never thought of this. But where do we get the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible? Where do we get it? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Where do we get them? They came from Moses. How did Moses know in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth? How was he able to write that down like he did? How was he able to give us the days of creation as they happened when he was born centuries later? Revelation from God. Moses was a truly amazing individual. Now, I don't deify him. He was a normal man uh, like every man in here. But God chose him to be the uh, recipient and the writer of incredible revelation. Incredible revelation. We're going to look at a lot of it tonight. All right? So he was, and, and when did he do it? Well, um, he did it 1,500 years before Christ. He wrote the book of Genesis 1,500 years before Christ. But Jesus quoted him. Jesus quoted him. And he probably wrote it while he was carrying Israel through the wilderness. He carried Israel through the wilderness for 40 years. That's boring. A lot of times they were stuck. Uh, they just traveled in circles a lot of the time. So, hey, uh, when all else fails, sit down and do something so you're not bored to death. And, and, and God moved on him when he was in the wilderness. And he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He, he wrote as he went. And God gave him this revelation. Can everybody say amazing with me? It's amazing. You got to kind of let your sanctified imagination go with this and think about what we're saying. 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses wrote. And Jesus came along 1,500 years later and quoted him uh, uh, as it was the word of God. He said, you believe Moses, you would believe in me. Because he wrote of me. 1,500 years before he arrived. He received the contents directly by revelation from God. They were not handed down by word of mouth. No. They were not handed. What Moses wrote was not handed down by word of mouth, which some people say is the only way we have the, the teachings of Moses. That it was all 
uh, passed down from generation to generation by word of mouth. But it wasn't. No, he received this revelation directly from God. Listen to what Acts 7 verse 38 says. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly, this is Stephen talking. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness. And when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. Revelation. The book of Genesis alone covers a time period of nearly 2,500 years. Hello? So Moses sat down and wrote the book of Genesis, and that covered 2,500 years of history that he didn't live in. From the creation to the journey of Israel into Egypt. The best way to look at Genesis is to break it up into two parts. And we're, we're about to get down to the creation, so hang with me. But this is important. Genesis 1 to 11, Moses records by revelation four historic, epical, defining moment events in earth's history. Here they were. Same with me. Creation, the fall, the flood, the tower, Tower of Babel. Moses in the first 11 chapters, covers this huge span of time. The, the creation of the world and the universe, the fall of man into sin, the great flood under Noah, and the Tower of Babel. He covers all of those in 11 chapters. So you are booking in the first 11 chapters. You are moving over huge slices of time. And it's this for, oh, in the second division, Genesis 1 through 11, those four epical events. And then Genesis 12 through 50, 12 through 50, focuses on one family, the family of Abraham and his descendants, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, and, and uh, the 12 uh, heads of the tribes of Israel. So Genesis 12 through 50 focuses, pulls in tight on, puts one family under the microscope, Abraham and his descendants, we track them and we follow them in chapters 12 through 50. Starting with the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1. But Genesis 1 through 11, these four huge events. And it's these huge events that I want to cover here on Wednesday night in the next few weeks. Everybody ready for that? Because this is where you get a biblical worldview. This is what the world attacks. We're about to look at and verify what the world says is a fairy tale. But it's as real as the chair you're sitting in. All right? So, the first epical event is the greatest one of all, in my opinion, and that's the creation of all things. Amen. So, let's look at the creation. Are you ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, Genesis 1, verse 1. This is the opening salvo of the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a beginning. And in that beginning was God. And God created everything that you see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. Now, the Hebrew word translated into God here in the beginning, God, uh, is Elohim. 
And Elohim uh, means creator. But there's something interesting in verse 1. Elohim in verse 1 is plural in the Hebrew in which it was written. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek with a smattering of Latin. All right? But the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, when Moses wrote in the beginning Elohim, he put Elohim plural. What's that telling us? Right in verse 1, immediately, we are given a strong uh, insinuation that there is a trinity, God the Father. There's an us up there, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Because in the beginning, plural Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Now, uh, in just a little bit, when it comes to God creating man, we see it again. It says, God said, let us make man. So there you've got a plurality of personalities involved in the creation of the universe and of man. So we're about to see that at the beginning of all things, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. But we're also told all through the New Testament that nothing was made that was made apart from Jesus. That everything made flowed through the fingertips of Jesus. So the plural Elohim is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Genesis 1-1 is absolutely amazing because in one verse, God refutes all of man's claims concerning the origin and meaning of the world. Are you ready? We know the first thing it refutes, it refutes atheism because in the beginning, the fourth word, God. So there goes atheism, kaput, right? It refutes deism. Now what's deism? Deism says that God created everything and then stepped out of the picture and let the world and the universe just tick along on its own and that he was not involved. But Genesis 1-1 totally refutes that because it's going to break down when God created everything and what he created on what day and the rest of the book of Genesis shows us that God integrally involved in all things regarding mankind. It refutes pantheism. What's pantheism? God is in everything. You look at a tree, that's God. God's in the tree, and the tree is in God, and the, and the tree is God. Uh, pantheism says uh, God's in everything. But Genesis reveals that God is separate from and far above what he created. So I appreciate the creation, but the creation ain't God. So isn't it kind of dumb to worship what God made Instead of the God who made it? Because that's what idolatry is. Now, it refutes polytheism. And polytheism means there's, there's many gods, tons of them. In Hinduism, there's over a thousand gods. All right? Try keeping up with that. Who do I pray to today? How do I pray to a thousand gods? But here's the deal. Uh, it refutes polytheism because one God created all things. And it's very clear about that. It refutes humanism because God, not man, is the ultimate reality and the center of all things. I hate to break it to you, but you and I, we're not all that in a bag of chips. Are you with me? Uh, no, I'm not all that and neither are you. As a matter of fact, 
I'll speak for myself. Jeff Wickwire is nothing. I am what I am by the grace of God. And whatever I'm not yet regarding Christ's likeness, the grace of God just hadn't gotten to it yet. But I am what I am by the grace of God. But who is the center of all things? God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Now, the rest of the Bible proceeds from the foundational truths found in Genesis. If you embrace the first declaration of Genesis, Genesis 1-1, everything else in the Bible is easy to embrace. If you struggle with the miraculous, go read Genesis 1-1. Because Genesis 1-1 is supremely and uniquely and wholly supernatural. Amen? Something came out of nothing. God created ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. If you believe that God's powerful enough to create the universe and everything in it, then any other miracle is peanut butter. Amen? So uh, the opening verse in the Bible introduces us to a supernatural act of God or a bunch of them. Um, Now, following the foundational truth of the first verse, chapter 1 goes on to describe the chronology of the creation. What was created when on what day? So let's look at verse 2. The earth was a formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, how many of you were ever taught that light was the first thing God created? Okay, I was. I was taught that. But you know what? You cannot escape verse 2. Because verse 2 lets us know, after verse 1 tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 lets us know that he first created the earth with a formless, as a formless, desolate emptiness. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So something was there before the creation of light. And here's what one commentator says. This verse expresses the state of primeval matter immediately after creation. Because obviously verse 2 is letting us know God has already created now the earth as this formless uh, chaotic mass. This commentator goes on, when as yet there was no cohesion between the separate particles. Earth at the beginning was a chaotic, incoherent waste of emptiness. Right before God said, let there be light, the earth existed in the way verse 2 describes it. And we discover the spirit of God. Uh, The Hebrew is ruach. And and it means breath or wind of God was was hovering over the surface of the waters that existed. So a landmass and waters had already been created. Verse 2 lets us know. Now, I believe that he proceeded into verse 3, the creation of of light, immediately after verse 2. I don't think there was any pre-Adamic creation. Thousands and thousands and millions of years had gone by until verse 3 came around. No, that's not what happened. God created this landmass and waters, and then right on the heels of that, let there be light. What's interesting is the word hovering that Moses wrote, moved by the Holy Spirit, 
uh, means fluttered lovingly. The Spirit of God fluttered lovingly over the waters of this this landmass and, and these waters, this earth that was about to receive such a creative effort from God. The Spirit of God was fluttering lovingly. Isn't that beautiful? All right? God's presence by his spirit was one of gentleness with intent to do something very, very good. Now, next, God created light. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, notice with me, God makes no preparation He employs no means. He doesn't need a secondary agency or any help from any other thing. He speaks and it is done. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. His word alone contains all things necessary for the fulfillment of his will. That's why I have no problem with the rapture. People go, and I get asked this a lot. Well, what if my loved one was was, uh, cremated? Or died, you know, what if my great ancestors died, they died 800 years ago, now all they are is dust. How's God going to get them up into heaven? Listen, he has ashes to deal with. In the creation, he had nothing to deal with. He just said, let there be, and it was. Bang. Ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. So when the rapture happens, the trumpet's going to blow, the archangel's going to shout, and we're going up, friend. We're going up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. How can God do that? The same God that created everything can do that. (sighs) Amen. Now, critics love to seize on this, this verse about light. And here's what they say. How could there be light when God didn't create the sun until day four? Okay. Well, okay, I dug into the commentators. Here's what one commentator says. He suggests it could easily have been electricity arising from the condensation and friction of the elements as they began to arrange themselves in order. Well, that's kind of a scientific description. I don't go with that. Uh, I believe, and many others do, that it was simply divine light. Like the light that will illuminate heaven. Did you know that when we go to heaven, folks, when heaven finally comes and we're up there forever... That there will be no more need for a sun or a moon or any other kind of light. Did you know that the Bible tells us in Revelations 21 verse 23, the city, the holy city of Jerusalem, heaven, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. Whoa. So there won't be any more need for the sun or the moon or any of that. No, no other source of light because The light that emanates from the countenance of the glorified, resurrected Jesus Christ is going to be the light that illuminates the city. Now, could not that same light have been the light that was spoken over the world on day one? Yes. I don't have any problem the sun wasn't there yet. Big deal. God was. Are you there, everybody? And I think that's totally rational. I don't believe I'm dealing in irrationality here or, uh, um, you know, uh, crazy fairy tale, mythical fable thinking. No. 
If you believe in God, you believe in miracles. Because God does not deal in natural order. He's above it. Now, either way, light was created on day one. Amen. Light. Isn't it interesting? The first thing God wanted to put on the earth was light. Now, then came the second day. Here we go. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and he separated the waters that were below the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. Now, let's take the word expanse. In other translations, it's called firmament. That's referring to the air or the atmosphere that separates the water and the clouds from that which is in and upon the earth. So it's the atmosphere that you and I dwell in. We're in earth's atmosphere. Uh, We breathe the oxygen of it. Everything alive breathes the oxygen of it. And and that's what he's talking about here. That's what God did. He separated the waters. That's what he did. And he created the atmosphere. So in essence, he was making a condition where life could exist. Amen? We're always looking at Mars and trying to find life somewhere else. Listen, let's focus on the life that's here on earth. And the souls that are here on earth. And ask me if I'm ever going with Elon Musk to Mars. No. No, I'm I'm focused on earth because you know why? God's focused on earth. All right. Now we come to day three. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land, what everybody? Earth. And the gathering of the waters he called what? Seas and God saw that it was good. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize what happened on day three. This is describing when God collected the world's waters into one vast body and restrained them within bounds and borders to protect the earth's soil from being flooded. Have you ever wondered how in the world, you know, you stand at the ocean's shore And these waves constantly rolling in. You see this vast, vast ocean with trillions upon trillions and trillions more of gallons of water. And yet, it doesn't come past a certain place. It doesn't flood the earth. It doesn't cover us up. Why? Because God gave it borders. Our God is a God of borders. Our God is a God of parameters. Our God is a God of lines in the sand. And God says... This far and no further. That's our God. And uh, he does this with you and me when it comes to things that are not good for us. He'll say, that's it. Don't go past this line in the sand. I'm giving you a border. I'm giving you a parameter. I'm giving you a, 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 a place where you are to live and move and have your being. And I don't want you going beyond the protective borders that I've established for you. He did the same thing with nature. The same thing with creation. He told the ocean, you're not going any further than the shorelines I give you. And that's what happened on day three. But the third day isn't finished. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Okay, here comes green things. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit according to their kind with seed in them. In other words, seed where they can reproduce. And it was so. 
and the earth produced vegetation, plants yielding seed. Here it is again, according to their kind. And trees bearing fruit with seed in them, according to their kind. What is God doing when he says according to their kind three times in two verses? He's saying, everything that I've made also has borders. You will not ever have an apple tree producing oranges. You will never have a cat producing a dog. You will never have one species producing another species. Because I'm giving everything I made borders, limits, uh, parameters. And that's why if you try to mix one species with another, you get a freak. If it lives. Because God said, no, it's got to be after its kind. You, you only reproduce after your kind, all right? So there was evening and there was morning, a third day. So God created the vegetation. He created plants. He created uh, uh, that whole uh, vegetative world on the third day. But then we come to day four. Then God said, now here comes the creation of the sun. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And they will serve as signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And they will serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, the lesser night, the moon, to govern the night. And he put a smile on Mr. Moon. I threw that in for free. That's not a verse. All right? Uh, and then Moses writes as if it was sort of inconsequential or secondary. And he made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. You got to sit back and think about what we just read, what all God did in one 24-hour period. Because every one of these days are 24-hour periods. This is the creation of the sun and the moon, the stars and the planets, the constellations and all the galaxies God made in one 24-hour period. Let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. It was all there. The burning sun, the glowing moon, the stars, the galaxies, the constellations, all of it in 24 hours, let there be. And that God can't rapture you out of here? Next, we read of day five. We're coming to the end of the creation. And God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures, whales, and I believe some dinosaurs, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed. Here we go again, according to their kind. Every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Now that's when he created marine life and the birds of the air. He populated the oceans and he populated the sky in one day. 
Now we come to day six. The last day of creation. Then God said, verse 24, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock and crawling things and animals of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the animals of the earth over and over again. We have this phrase, according to their kind. They will never be able to reproduce except according to their kind. Can I just stop a minute and ask you, what does that do with evolution? Stop, think with me a minute. What does that do with evolution? Because what does evolution demand? That in some primordial sea, millions and millions and maybe billions of years ago, some single-celled organism floating around that somehow got there, finally grew legs, crawled out onto land, And began to reproduce. And from that single-celled organism came all the species of everything. But here's the deal. It can't happen. Because one species can't produce another. Because everything reproduces according to its kind. So, ladies and gentlemen, evolution is nuts. It's not rational. Forget, okay, I'm an atheist, but okay, if I'm an atheist, I can still look at it and go, but that doesn't happen. Because one species can't produce another. You can even try to make it happen and it doesn't work. So where did the thousands upon thousands and thousands and thousands more of species come from? A single-celled organism that crawled out of a primordial sea billions of years ago. It can't happen. It can't happen. And yet, I was taught, your children are still taught, that evolution is a fact. But it's not. It's a theory. And I don't even call it that. A hypothesis. I wouldn't even call it a hypothesis. A working hypothesis. Because it doesn't work. Are you with me, everybody? Because we're reading over and over again, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind, according to their kind. It's repeated constantly in the creation. So on the sixth day, God created living mammals, reptiles, and insects. Now I want you to see something as we close tonight. Everybody being blessed here? You being blessed? Now watch this. With every living thing God created, we're looking at a divine pattern. And here it is. Glorious variety. All right? Two, breathtaking beauty. Three, amazing complexity. This is what our God does. The God we walk with every day. He's a God of glorious variety. Breathtaking beauty. Amazing complexity. Now let me blow your mind with something as we close. As of today, right now, there are over 5,400 species of animals alone. 9,000 species of birds. 32,000 species of fish. Did you catch that? 32,000 species of fish. It gets better. 925,000 species of bugs. Insects. 
it gets better. There's from 200 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. But it gets better. There's 200 billion trillion stars. Now, just take the species alone and tell me evolution is real. Because a species can't create another species. It can't happen. It doesn't happen. It's always reproducing after its kind. So where in the world did literally hundreds of thousands of species of everything come from? Let there be. No wonder the Apostle Paul wrote, Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and sky and all God made. And they have known of his existence and great eternal power by what he made. So that they'll have no excuse when they stand before God on judgment day. Because, because as David said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They proclaim, they display, they speak, they make known. Again, Paul lets us know, for by him, Jesus, that's the him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And one last verse, and we're going to close. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. Isaiah 45, verse 18. Let's stand together. Now, I'm going to stop there because the second half of day six is when you and me came along. And that requires and calls for a lot more time. We're going to focus on how you came about next week. And guess what? You were not evolved. All right? Uh, and you did not come from an ape. You didn't come from a monkey. You didn't come from anything. No, no. God fashioned you and in his image. And so we're going to look at what that means next week. How many of you want to know what that means? What does it mean? He made me in his image. I'm going to tell you next week. All right? Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your blessing. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God of creation. Everything you made, the the hundreds of thousands of species, the incredible, beautiful, breathtaking variety. We praise you for it, Lord. We bless your name for it. Can you say with me, everybody, what a mighty God we serve. Say it again. What a mighty God we serve. One more time, can we? What a mighty God we serve. Father, bless the people of God. Thank you for a renewed mind. And thank you for all you've done. May your face shine upon us as we go and give us victory for the remainder of this week in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Have a good week.